Hello. Welcome to Lamniforms Radio. This episode is the audio version of the latest issue of my newsletter titled Justified Anger slash Pensions Subjunctive. A quick note before we get started. To my readers living outside of New York City who may have an exaggerated sense of how chaotic things are here, I am safe. The violence against protesters is very real, but the city itself is nowhere near the Kurt Russell picture it's been painted as. I have been to some of the protests, and part of me is waiting for the other shoe to drop and for my sense of taste to take a nosedive, but I haven't been on the front lines in any real sense. So don't worry about me, is all I'm saying. I am an unapologetically slow writer. It is a credit to the medium of the written word that one gets to rework sentences and cut out hasty thoughts before sharing them with the world. The last few weeks have called for more action and less talk. I spent the first Friday after George Floyd's murder as a voyeur, cycling through images of Minneapolis boiling over with righteous anger and cop vans erupting with flames in Brooklyn. In the span of a day, my need to join New York in the streets overwhelmed my fear of getting sick. The world that I rejoined didn't resemble the spring of 2020 that I had experienced in brief snatches. Instead, I stepped into an echo of the fall of 2016, in those first few weeks after Trump's election. Then, as now, it seemed like everyone I knew had rushed into manic activity. Monoculture briefly returned. There was no other subject of conversation. All that anyone differed on was how to respond. Then, as now, there was relentless posting, galvanized protests, and a stunning flow of information both sought out and generated by the moment. Many were playing catch-up, cramming the assigned reading as the Overton window drifted out of their view. Many more were thrust, whether by experience or newfound conviction, into action. That we have returned to this level of mass unrest and collective desperation for change proves that the flurry of action in 2016 did not in the strictest sense accomplish its goals. The marches, the petitioning, the daily calls to Washington, D.C., or the state capitol, or the mayor's office, to whoever would pick up, were slowly diluted by an onslaught of new information. Under Trump, America's most productive industry is information. The flood of news has never stopped, and it is to the credit of this current moment that it has held on for these two weeks, even as new distractions wash up against it daily. By now, it is clear that whatever name we settle on for this current wave of protests isn't an echo of 2016 alone. I've read references to 2014, 2011, 1992, and 1968. It's really just a matter of perspective. Clearly, something is happening now, and we're all reaching for a similarly intense moment in the past to orient ourselves with. 
The cause and effect that led us here should be fairly clear. No matter if your introduction to the racist brutality of American law enforcement was the assault on Rodney King, the murder of Tamir Rice, the murder of Eric Garner, the murder of Sandra Bland, the murder of Laquan McDonald, murders that could be named ad nauseum, for if this endless thresher upon the lives of black Americans does not nauseate you, then I dread to know what you have the stomach for. No matter how you became aware of this country's grotesque history of bigoted violence, this instance felt different. On top of the collective weight of a racist history, we are experiencing record levels of unemployment as a result of a disease that has killed over 100,000 Americans following the complete negligence of the same government that was elected in 2016. I firmly believe that under these conditions, a mass movement was inevitable. There's a pain of salvation lyric that has come to me often in the last few months. If you take from those you fear everything they value, you have bred the perfect beast, drained enough to kill you. This latest stratification of means was bound to snap. That underlying tension made the sadism of George Floyd's recorded death all the more sickening. Even now, under such dire circumstances as to necessitate empathy and cooperation, the cops remain indifferent to the value of black life. I should note that since I began writing this letter, the cops have added more names to this list. In Atlanta, a man named Richard Brooks was shot to death by the police in the parking lot of a Wendy's. Chances are high that further names will be written in blood by the time this letter goes public. When pushed this far, excuses for inaction melt away at a brisk rate. You have no job and rent is due. Or you have a job that puts you in the crosshairs of a virus that has already taken some of your co-workers' lives. Each strata of your government has made efforts to bail out landlords and corporations, but has barely thrown you a bone. And now, for nearly nine minutes, you have watched a man that could be your co-worker, your neighbor, you, suffocate under the casual indifference of a cop. Too many people have too little to lose. If you want the short answer for why now, there you go. So buildings burned. Windows broke. Cop cars became torches, proof in the long night of American bigotry that hope is still there. More importantly, people took to the streets in all 50 states. In turn, they were met with violence. By forcing the point, the protests have proved the point. The cops are heartless bullies. They will drive you over. They will throw you to the floor and insult you. They will pull guns on you. They will douse you in tear gas. They will fake solidarity and then charge you like this was nothing more than a game of football to them. They will do anything but give a fuck about you. Revealing this on camera, not for the first time, but this country has a short memory, has added potency to the protests. Police departments found themselves in a perpetual motion machine. The more they attempted to brutalize and control the protesters, the more apparent the need to protest was. Even the limp-dicked curfews of the country's Democratic mayors could not stem the tide. You know the drill. Mad as hell. Not going to take it anymore. And for good reason. 
Coincidentally, I have just finished reading Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. Not exactly a pleasant experience, but a gratifying one. Though its setting, the tail end of World War II, doesn't resemble the present, the book did hammer home a concept that I think is applicable. Gravity's Rainbow is split into four sections, the longest of which is The Zone, the name given by the novel's narrator to Germany after the defeat of the Nazis. Pynchon describes this period as a power vacuum, but also as a narrative vacuum. This interregnum is chaotic, but also rife with potential. This brief moment before the maps are redrawn and order is restored gives a glimpse to possible futures, possible ways of being that aren't predetermined by the status quo. Fascination with these moments is something of a pension trademark, whether the early days of the internet or the height of the 1960s protests Pynchon's eye is drawn to moments where people have temporarily broken free of the systematized drudgery and bureaucratic control that define modern life. I'd wager that Pynchon's heart is with the dreamers in these settings, the hackers, hippies, and anarchists. But it's to his novel's credit that he cuts his enthusiasm with a healthy portion of whist. When he writes of these moments in history, it is always with a sense of melancholy, a kind of historical irony from seeing in advance the ensuing crackdown that lies just a step ahead of his characters. This makes his books seem pessimistic, or in the case of Gravity's Rainbow, downright nihilistic. But he never scoffs at the desire to break free and start anew, even when he acknowledges the futility of this gesture. Even if it is only temporary, this disruption in the fabric of life is necessary, if only for the possibility it briefly suggests. People who have studied literature with far more intensity than I call this tone subjunctive, in other words, describing what could be. Every protest I've been to contains some trace of the Pinchonian subjunctive. By their very nature, protests transform the world they take place in. With enough people by your side, the distinction between the sidewalk, the bike lane, and the street becomes hazy, a difference of medium, asphalt versus concrete, rather than function. Protest discards the unconscious grid that guides our daily movements. In its place, life becomes a living thing growing, decaying, and adjusting in response to new stimuli. No march is the same, and no march is internally consistent. Pace, chance, intensity, every possible variable, well, varies from block to block. Even these differences between sections of a march are porous and are redefined at a rate that renders graphing useless. The power of protests comes from what this suggests for the rest of life. If we can so quickly rewrite something as hardwired as don't walk in the street if you don't want to get hit by cars, what else can be rewritten? What you learn through protests is that the laws that govern your life only exist in as much as they are enforced. I will go to my grave recalling the ecstatic sense of possibility I felt marching against traffic on Lakeshore Drive in 2016 past cars trapped in a sea of pedestrians. 
if all it took to nullify a highway was mass agreement, then all future nullifications are simply a matter of scale. With enough collective gumption, anything is possible. Even if the marchers return to the grid the next morning, the grid will never be the same to them. Its authority will always be suspect. That newfound doubt is the soil for every future nullification. In this sense, each subjunctive zone becomes the birthplace of its successor. What I am saying here is that each movement will run up against its limits or will fall short of its most utopian potential, but that this failure is in a way necessary because it encourages further movements. In lieu of a silver bullet in the heart of evil, this chain of succession of each generation sprinting as far as they can until the next wave can carry the torch another mile will have to suffice. This is how I defended Occupy in 2011, a movement that may not have accomplished much in the short term, but did introduce a subgeneration to the language of dissent. It is also how I view the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, or CHAZ for short, a Pinchonian touch if there ever were one. I am skeptical of exactly how long CHAZ can last and what damage it can sustain on the police regime in America. On its own, it cannot rectify the damage done to black Americans, cannot erase the redlining and discrimination that have shaped the economics of this country. But as a gesture of nullification and a symbol of possibility, I can't help but tip my hat. So if you're facing this moment and you're not sure what to do, all I can say is do, act, move. Our collective entropy towards consumption and infighting is already hard at work. Move now before it eats this movement whole. We have to squeeze every ounce of potential from our current point of leverage. Every inch gained here is one that could be snatched away at any moment. The need to defund the police, to take every necessary step towards the abolishment of the police and the nullification of the carceral state has never been more clear. The fog of institutional power and the flood of information will do all that they can to make things less clear, less urgent, more diffuse and segmented. I share Pynchon's melancholy. If the status quo is anything, it is resilient. But every crack at its foundation matters, if only to show the next generation where to aim. There are many places to start. I'm sure you're flooded with petitions and call lists and GoFundMes, but I'd like to draw your attention to something smaller. If you can, I'd encourage you to donate to the Good Life Garden, a community garden run here in Brooklyn that helps provide food and jobs for its neighbors. I met its founder, Kofi, while volunteering two summers ago, and he struck me as a certified good dude. And really... What better place to start fighting back against the wave of death than in a plot of land designed to bring about new life? Thank you for listening. More episodes soon. For liberty there is a cost It's broken skulls and leather cars 
from the boys in uniform. Now you know whose side they're on with backing, with blessing from earthly gods, not heaven, a stone's throw away. those who get from stripping skin with rhino whip are the kind that must be stopped before the kind take all we've got with loving with caring they take great pride in working the stones throw away to it all You'll hear the snap of broken ribs Of anyone who'll take no more Of the lying bastard's throat In Chile, in Poland Johannesburg, South Yorkshire A stone's throw away Now it's 